Every day when you wake up, you should get out of bed and you should do something for those things that you love. Kind of step into the breach and act. That the worst thing you can do with your life is not act, in this case, protecting those things you love. And it could be the tiniest little watershed behind your house. And there's a little land trust there working away at it. Whatever it is. The point is to act. Since Rough Guys launched 35 years ago, travel has changed beyond recognition. It's now cheaper and easier to go anywhere in the world. And as more and more of us become tourists, the way that we travel is having a massive impact on the environment and local communities. Now, we've always promoted responsible travel in our guidebooks. So in this episode, I wanted to invite in two eco-pioneers who have each changed the landscape of conservation in completely different ways. We have Chris Tompkins and Amos Bien. Now, in the case of Chris Tompkins, she's quite literally changed the landscape of an entire region. If you haven't heard of Chris, she's a pretty big deal. She was the CEO at Patagonia Clothing and went on to set up one of the most ambitious conservation projects ever. She's been working in southern Chile and Argentina in the Patagonia region, where she's been rewilding millions of acres of land and donating it back to the people as national parks. She's a true inspiration and there's a very good chance that she'll have you reevaluating your whole life by the end of the interview. But first up, we hear from one of our own Rough Guides authors. His name is Shafik Megji and he's currently out updating the Rough Guide to Costa Rica. Now, as part of his research for the guide, Shafik went to chat with Amos Bien. He is one of the founding fathers of ecotourism as we know it today and he set up the Rara Avis Reserve in Costa Rica. But first up... Here is Shafik flexing his David Attenborough skills while exploring the reserve. So I've just arrived in the Wara Abyss Reserve after the most bone-shaking journey of my life. I spent the last four hours on a cart pulled by a tractor up an incredibly bumpy and rock-strewn track. Um, we've climbed about... 700 meters in altitude so it's a fair bit cooler here than the uh, hot steamy temperatures uh, back at sea level um, you can just hear the uh, one of several waterfalls that's featuring the reserve in the background i've just crossed a very rickety uh, uh, rickety bridge uh, into the lodge itself now royal Avis is really a pioneering project it was set up in 1983 and it's one of the first um private reserves in Costa Rica and it's really inspired many many ecotourism projects both here in Costa Rica and throughout the world and I can't wait to explore. So I'm hiking along one of the many trails here at Rara Avis and it's pretty heavy going the trails are thick with mud crisscrossed by tree roots which have been brought down by the most recent hurricane. The canopy above us is thick and doesn't let in much light. It's really dank and hot and humid here. 
but it's quite an incredible environment. Um, there's an amazing diversity of species here. Um, there's more bird species here than in the whole of the UK. There's well as many poisonous snakes. And we've just spotted a fresh jaguar print and also smelt the mark that it left. It's really quite musty, pungent odour. I think actually though one of the most impressive things that I've seen on the on this particular hike are the hard-working teams of leafcutter ants. Um, they've built these massive uh, ant nests, often around the side of a tree or uh, up a muddy bank, and they use the leaves to essentially farm mushrooms, uh, which they eat. They don't actually eat the leaves themselves. Another fascinating species in this area is the so-called walking palm. And this is a uh, type of palm that has is raised up on like a multi-legged tripod of roots, and uh, in its desperate quest to get closer to the to the sun, it grows extra roots which allow it to move or walk towards the sunlight. And over a 20-30 year period, they can move up to three metres in distance, uh, which is really quite incredible. The remoteness uh, and also the range of species that you get at Royal Avis means that uh, you get a, a rainforest experience here quite unlike any other in Costa Rica. So I'm in the open-air dining room of uh, Reserva Royal Abyss um, with Amos Bien, who um, is one of the founders of the reserve. Um, Amos, tell me a bit about how the, the reserve came about. Well, in the late 1970s, I was working at La Selva Biological Station uh, doing my dissertation research on something that was not very important. And I kept thinking about how it was silly to be working on something so unimportant when the forest was disappearing. It was more like trying to tune a watch when somebody's out there with a sledgehammer about to destroy it. <laughs> um, and I started thinking about the 90% of rainforest land that's never going to be in a national park. Um, most countries, the area that goes into national parks is... In the United States, it's 4%. In Europe, it's less than 1% in most countries. In Latin America, it runs around 10 to 15%. And I thought, what are we going to do about the rest of it? Are we just going to have farmland right up to the boundary of the national parks? Or are we going to find some way to make them still have forest? Mm -hmm. The only way to do that, I think, is to make people want to conserve. And... I was very bored by my dissertation project, so I would walk off the boundaries and I'd hear someone cutting down the forest with their chainsaw or their axe and I'd go up and it was a, a lonely man out in the forest trying to make a farm for himself, trying to, with his sweat equity, to make himself a piece of land to make mm -hmm. a cattle ranch. And when I started talking to them, I realized that at best they were going to be making, oh, 10 to $20 a hectare a year on a very small plot. They were never going to be able to make a living. 
And I thought, if we, the biologists, can't find a way to make more than 10 to $20 a hectare a year, we're not doing anything. So I tried to convince my colleagues that we had to find ways to, to be able to make the rainforest useful to people without cutting it down. Which is, which is really ecotourism. Ecotourism is one of the ways. Hmm. I thought of three different ways of doing it. One of them was ecotourism, which the term wasn't even in use at the time. There wasn't any, the terms of sustainable development and ecotourism, and none of that existed at the time. Um, but I couldn't convince any of my colleagues. All they were talking about was more national parks, more national parks and putting a lock and key around it. And I thought, we can't put a lock and key around them if the people who are cutting down the forest, who aren't big companies, but just people who want to make a better life for themselves, don't have an opportunity to have that life for themselves, that good life for themselves. So we have to find a way to make it happen. I couldn't convince anyone at the time that this made sense. So the only thing that was left was to do it. So in 1983, with the help of a few friends and relatives and uh, um, of a few Costa Rican biologists and a forest ranger from here in Orquetas, we set about looking for a piece of land. We found the piece of land that had the ideal characteristics that we wanted, which was about, we well, wanted 400 to 700 meters above sea level so it wouldn't be too, too hot for people coming from the north in the winter. Wanted something that we had relatively level terrain, old growth primary rainforest, it was beautiful, had clear title, good access, and a central attraction. In this case, when I found this piece of land, the central attraction was the waterfall, but it could have been anything. And, and, and this area has quite an interesting history. I, I believe there was a, a prison colony Yes, here. from from 1963 to 65, there was a prison colony very near here, three kilometers away in a place called El Plastico, because the prisoners first slept under black plastic in 1963. And the prisoners' job was to clear rainforest, which fortunately they did very little of because they were doing it by hand with axes, and they abandoned it in 1965. The land was then homesteaded by campesinos, by, by people from, from the area, from the banana plantations in the lowlands and other people nearby, to again try to become landowners. But this was so remote that it really had very little value for people. So that was in 1983 was when we started. And then it took me two years to build the road, and then two years to build the buildings, then constructed what you see today, and then promoted it as an alternative to rainforest destruction. So this became the first eco-lodge in Costa Rica and a model for the rest of Costa Rica, which has then become a model for the rest of the world. So it all started here. And, and I was going to say that really eco-tourism and Costa Rica have become synonymous. You, you know, when you were setting um, the reserve up, did you ever expect that it would kind of snowball and have this... This, this effect? That was the objective. My hero for this was Louis Parmentier, who was the Minister of Agriculture of Louis XVI in France, who used the techniques of making people want something without realizing they wanted it uh, as a way of using human greed to get people to, to, adopt, to adopt the potato. <laughs> he had fenced farms around, the, uh, around France and said they were for growing apples of the earth for the king's table prohibited people from taking them away because they were the king's property. But he sent the guards home at night. But he, in daytime, he trained all the local people in how to cultivate them, how to harvest them, and how to cook them. So all the expertise was transferred. 
But because people weren't allowed to take it, they stole the idea, they appropriated the idea. And my idea was to make something where people would steal this idea and run with it and do it themselves. <laughs> and so we had a business plan here that said, prohibited to remove from here, from the property. It described really how to do it. And I kept renewing them, probably 10 new ones each month. Uh, each one labeled, do not remove private property. Uh, <laughs> and people learned how to do ecotourism in Costa Rica. I'm sure that future generations won't believe that there was once a time when sustainable travel didn't even exist. But Amos is living proof that every great idea has to start somewhere, however obvious it might seem. And I absolutely love his determination to create something that people would steal and run with themselves. 4,000 miles south of Costa Rica, we caught up with Chris Tompkins in Patagonia over a very slightly crackly Skype connection. Chris, where in the world are you right now? What can you see out the window? The edge of 800,000 acres of temperate rainforest. <laughs> wow. Chris's story starts in California in the 1960s when, at the age of 15, she met a young rock climber named yeah. Yvonne Chouinard, who was renting the beach cabin next to her family one summer. They hit it off and she became part of a kind of tribe of adventurers, climbers and skiers, along with Yvonne's partner Melinda and his friend Doug Tompkins. Yvonne went on to set up Patagonia Clothing, where Chris joined after college and climbed the ranks to become a CEO. But Chris didn't stop there. After working for the company for almost 20 years, she decided to make a big life change. You know, I, I started working for Yvonne when I was 21 years old, or, or Patagonia. And by the time I was over 40, I thought, God, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. And I realized that I didn't know what it was, but that I, I, I needed to do something else. Even though I love the company, I'm still involved in the company through the board of directors and so on. And at that time, uh, Doug and I re-met down in southern Argentina in the Patagonia area. And it just all started there. And Doug had his eye on conservation land in Chile. So I retired on a Friday after all those many, many years and moved or at least shifted myself down to Doug and wherever the projects were. And that's how we've been living ever since. Yeah. And how did your friends and family respond when you told them, right, I'm actually going now and I'm going to be living in Patagonia? I think they were more concerned about two opinionated hotheads getting together than necessarily where all the places we would be working. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I see. So you arrive in South America and you're, am I right in thinking you were in quite a wild place? The, the first place where you went to is one of the only roadless places between... Canada and the southern tip of South America. What was it like on your first day arriving there? Uh, well, I had visited down there, actually the same park that I'm looking out on today, months before. So it wasn't, the place wasn't so shocking, but waking up and not 
running a company anymore and being in this beautiful roadless area, it took some, it took some adjustment. No English spoken here, and uh, at least uh, where we were based when we got while we got the project started. So it was, it was as big a change I think anyone could make in their lives. Uh, uh, we uh, we made it. So, what is it about the Patagonian landscape that you fell in love with and made you want to move down there? Well, the reason we started living here is because of conservation. So think about the coast of British Columbia or southern New Zealand, but 800,000 acres of it that is pristine, that is a roadless area. It's extraordinary beauty, obviously silence in the evenings. (laughs) And... um, you know, we had lots of people around us. People were always visiting. They always have done. And we lots of employees working on the project. But you have to remember that pretty shortly thereafter, we started hopping around to a lot of different projects. So um, it's not as though we had this contemplative life living in one place enjoying the silence it was always based on the projects themselves can you just give us an idea of what exactly was the main project that you went down and what were you hoping to achieve well the first project the pumaline project which we were fortunate enough to find very large tracts of land that were uh, available to buy and that fell within our budgets and that's how we got started really sort of patching together these very large contiguous landscapes and <clears throat> from there before too long we started branching out the same concept but in other areas between Argentina and Chile and and then in the meantime building uh, we had what we called uh, little farms, and they were really experimental farms to see if there was a way to make a living in this kind of territory without burning the forests and um, overgrazing the grasses and so on. So besides the conservation, the raw conservation side, we were very early on trying to experiment with uh, new ways to be in this landscape without destroying it. How how did the local Chileans and Argentinians respond to you when you first arrived? Well, I don't know if, uh, if you've heard of any of this, but certainly the initial reaction to the Pumaline project was uh, came very quickly and was very harsh from one particular government. And... They accused us of starting a new Jewish state, even though we were raised Anglican. They accused us of uh, creating a nuclear waste dump for the United States and so on. And basically it was all just a reaction to something new. Nobody had ever seen in Chile at this point to foreigners come in by a extensive tracts of land and and then 
not cutting the forest down, but rather begin developing public access. So not only owning the land, but inviting people to come and hike on the trails and so on and so forth. And it took really several years before people really began to see that what we'd been saying all along was the case. And then things really shifted around. It was, I'd say the first four or five years were pretty rough. But after that, uh, that particular pre president left office, a new one came in, and our relationship with the government uh, henceforth was quite positive. But, so presumably you would have, you did speak to the government about the process and exactly what your aims Always, were. Always, at every level, at every level. But it, you know, action is loud, speaks louder than words, which we've been taught since we were young, and it turns out it's quite true. That's just how it is. Until you actually have people coming into the park and using the campgrounds and the trails and so on, it's very hard to imagine that this could be possible. There were very uh, few examples of this almost anywhere at this scale, but certainly here in Chile it was new. So step by step, what actually is the process of, of getting the land and then turning it into a national park? Well, first you have to acquire the land. Then you have to decide, is it land that will have a lot of infrastructure, no infrastructure because it's so isolated. Um, and if it requires infrastructure, then you need to build it. And then when it's ready, you have to go to the government and say, we would like to donate these lands to the government of Chile in this case. And they have to agree that they would like to do that, to accept the donation, and then there's a legal process that you go through until a decree is signed with the government and the donation is made and it is declared a brand new national park with all the protection that a national park enjoys. What's important about having national parks for people, do you think? Well, I think in the UK, national parks have a very different profile than they do in the United States or Canada or... Australia, Argentina, even here in Chile, because they're very, very important part of sort of the national psyche. And I think that um, every country has its physical masterpieces. And I believe that the national park systems worldwide, even though they may be underfunded, they may have all sorts of problems associated with them, they are still the one entity that probably gives you the best possible chance of securing permanent protection for these places. And, and you know, I'm talking 100 years from now, 200 years from now, because that's what you're going for. If, if in the case of the, of the UK, if someone 400 years ago had decided that national parks should exist, the concept of them, this is crazy, it never would have. But that's when you would have had to begin this kind of process because today creating national parks in the UK is extremely difficult. It's not impossible, but there's very little land 
left that that isn't used for some sort of domestic uh, you know use so we've purchased about 2.2 million acres of land outright um, a third of which has already been donated toward new national parks and then where we can we get the government if they're willing and able to to add additional lands that are contiguous to what we may what we've purchased so you're always trying to leverage the conservation value of whatever acreage you have so a big part of what you do is the restoration of species is that right Yes, it's, it's, it's not the main part of what we do, but it's the second most important thing we do that we decided several years ago that where we're working, we will identify species that may be missing in that landscape and wherever possible, we will work hard to, to rewild it, to bring them back. And especially in our Ibera project in northeastern Argentina, uh, that's where we have really done the most from working with jaguars through tapirs, giant anteaters, many, many species. The thing is, it's we were always driven by the work and the love of wild things. And Doug was a very accomplished bush pilot. So that's how we got around from the beginning. Wow, so no, no roads at all. So it was a case of flying from A to B. Flying or taking a boat. Wow. But yeah, we flew almost every day. Chris wasn't alone in her mission to rewild the plains of Patagonia. Her partner Doug was just as single-minded and dedicated to the cause as her. It was absolutely their baby. He was a close friend of her business partner, Yvonne Chenard, so he was part of Chris's life since the early Patagonia days at the very beginning of her story. Doug and Yvonne were very good friends, very uh, long-time climbing partners and adventuring together. I met Doug through Yvonne when I was 19. He was kind of infamous, and he and Yvonne would take off for five months a year and go climbing or boating or whatever it was. It's hard to describe that in simple terms because he really was an extraordinary human being sort of pushed the limits on everything in his life and both those men I have to say have lived exactly the lives they wanted to live they they never compromised and they never found themselves feeling oh I should grow the business or I should be doing something else with my life uh, they lived absolutely by their own book. And I worked for Yvonne nearly 25 years and then was with Doug for nearly 25 years. So I always laugh that at 66, I only have 16 years to account for of, on my own. So you went down and you set up and you traveled there with Doug. And then in December 2015, you received some news. Yeah, well, he died in a kayaking accident. Biggest news of my life. Nothing could be worse, frankly. Doug, who was now 72, had been out kayaking with Yvonne and a few other friends on what was meant to be an easy five-day paddle by their standards. 
On the fourth day of the trip, battling 40 mile per hour winds, Doug's boat capsized. Rescue helicopters were called, but by the time he was pulled to shore, Doug had been in the freezing cold water for more than an hour. He died of hypothermia six hours after arriving at the hospital. One phone call and everything changed. And yet, Chris has kept working. I mean, on the working side, of course, um, I'm working maybe better and harder than ever in my life. But on the personal side, it's an amputation. It's a complete um, breakdown and loss of everything meaningful to me. We were inseparable. But I am... Um, I have a charmed life. Uh, other than that, I look back on my life and I think, my God, I was able to do so much with my life and the Patagonia company, uh, the work here, the friends that we have, the teams that we've built in our business lives and then within conservation. Yeah, I would say I've had an extraordinary life. and. I can see nothing I would do over. My only, my only pain is the loss of my husband. You've obviously made some huge decisions in your life and it seems like some very, I don't know, some very important and big life-changing decisions that you've made along the line. And it takes a lot to make those decisions. So what would you say to someone to inspire them to take life by the scruff of the neck and do it? You know, that's a good question. And sometimes I can't believe I did what I did. But I would say this, and especially knowing when, when Doug died, he died with no regrets, nothing left unsaid between us, and, and nothing left undone. And that's an enormous lesson. And I, I know it's really trite to say, but you really do only have one life, at least as far as we know. And people who get stuck and say, oh, I would really like to be doing this, but I can't, it's too difficult, it's too this, it's too that. I think you're cutting one of your legs off. I mean, the worst thing that could have happened is... I could have gotten down here, decided it was a massive mistake, and, and then done something else. So many, many people have often asked why we could live in such a remote place, a, a series of places, and, and don't I feel so cut off from urban life or, um, yeah, urban life. And, and I always say, I, I don't feel like this is at all cut off. First of all, I wouldn't care if it was, but it isn't. If I decided today, for example, early enough in the day, that tomorrow morning I wanted to be in New York City, I could be there. I mean, this is, this is not a hardship. And people need to understand that they should follow their instincts more and not get trapped by 
by fear of the unknown or fear of not having uh, the perfect school for your kids or a theater next door or whatever it is that drives us to be so frightened by doing something bold with your life. The, the days that you remember in your life are not the days you go to work. They're the days you decided to go hiking and you were cold and you were miserable and you know, whatever. Those are the days you remember. So if you want to see of kind of gray matter as your life, then, then you should stay in one spot or, or not take any risks with your life. But uh, if, if you have a desire to do something else with your life, and I'm not saying one has to have this desire, I'm saying if you do, then jump. I think Chris is right that the world is split between people who want to go and do that thing that they've always longed to do, whether it be dedicating their life to a good cause or going full throttle and escaping into the wilderness. And then the others who are perfectly happy with what they've got. Now, for anyone who falls in that first camp, anyone with a restlessness to do something different, I think Chris strikes a nerve here. She definitely did with me. And it's a bit of a wake-up call to think that the only person who can get you out from your office swivel chair to that creaky wicker chair in Patagonia is yourself. Thank you to Chris Tompkins for taking the time to chat. You can read more about her work on tompkinsconservation.org. Thanks also to Shafik Megji for sending his brilliant dispatch in from Costa Rica. We really appreciate that. Shafik has updated over 30 rough guides, and you can also read about his travels on The Guardian and The Huffington Post. Follow him on Twitter at Shafik Megji or visit shafikmegji.com. Cheers also to my producer, Alana Chance, to my boss, George D, to Keith Drew, and my executive producers, Laura Sheeter and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Thank you.